welcome to episode 22 of the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke, and on this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Stuart McGill. Dr. Stuart McGill is one of the world's foremost, foremost experts on low back disorders. He's the author of two books, Low Back Disorders and Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance, as well as having two DVDs out as well. On the show, myself and Dr. McGill discussed everything and anything to do with low back disorders. As with every show up until now, it was extremely informative, and I hope you guys really enjoy it. Okay, um, Dr. Stuart McGill, as with all of my guests who've been on my show, it's a real honor to have you on. Um, you've been a big influence on me as a, as a strength and conditioning coach and a physical therapist. Just for any, any of my listeners who aren't familiar with who you are, just fill us in on your background. <laughs> well, good morning, Robbie, first of all. Uh, well, I'm a professor of uh, spine biomechanics. Uh, at the University of Waterloo in Canada. Uh, there we run two different laboratories. Uh, one is where we uh, take cadaveric, ca- cadaveric spines from uh, people and different animals and uh, create the injuries to try and understand what causes them. And uh, the second laboratory is uh, all based on uh, living people uh, both uh, failed backs through to uh, high-performance uh, athletes. In fact, we specialize at both ends of that spectrum, not really in the middle. And the third component of it all is uh, we have a clinic. So I see patients uh, uh, one day a week. They're usually uh, special patients. Uh, I don't just see anybody. They, they all fly in from around the world, uh, and the conditions are that they have had to have seen uh, Ten or so other clinicians and have failed. Either they got worse or they uh, didn't get better. So you'd be surprised at uh, some of these athletes and, and uh, uh, high-powered business people. You think they would have access to uh, clinicians that help them, but uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. Anyway, that's uh, I've, I've been at uh, the University of Waterloo uh, 31 years now, I believe. So uh, you, you really see the most beaten up cases? Well, I, I, I do see what we call the failed backs as well, where everything hurts. Uh, uh, they they laying down, sitting, uh, all of those activities uh, cause pain. So it's a real expertise to, uh, you, you can't really do any exercise with those people. Uh, the, the, the first philosophical approach is to try and understand their pain triggers and then uh, engineer a movement program uh, to not cause pain. Very, very simple pain-free movements. And then, of course, over time, work to expand that repertoire of uh, pain-free movement. So that's the challenge with uh, the very lowest uh, type of uh, patient. Um, oh, and I should say that uh, there's really not much margin for error. You have to be quite precise with that kind of work if you're going to be successful. Well, that same degree of precision holds true for the very high end when you're dealing with athletes who uh, are, are pushing their bodies uh, and uh, th- th- that same precision and living on the knife edge uh, uh, cont- continues. Why, in your opinion, do you believe, or what do you believe are the biggest triggers that cause dysfunctional uh, low backs? Well, uh, dysfunction and pain, I suppose, are uh, sometimes the same and sometimes two different things. But uh, could I answer that by changing the question slightly and saying, why do people come and see me? Why have they failed to get better? Is is that okay? Absolutely, that's fine, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's very uh, person-specific. Uh, generally, the trainer, uh, if they had a good back to start with, the trainer caused it. They, they gave them uh, an inappropriate dosage of inappropriate exercises, and it, uh, basically the cumulative damage to the tissues of their back outstrips the pace of repair. So slowly over time, they, they become uh, painful. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting that uh, we all know uh, colleagues who uh, uh, they, they don't have any back pain and they're couch potatoes. They, they don't train at all. And, and this is 
seen as very unfair by a lot of people because, you know, they train every day, uh, go to the, the gym for an hour every day, and uh, sitting at work causes them pain, and they think they're going to train their way out of this pain at, at, uh, in their training sessions, and it, it doesn't work that way. Uh, what they have done is overloaded their back in training so that a low uh, load activity like sitting then becomes very painful. It's usually a, a discogenic type of pain. So that's another uh, category. Um, and then there were all of the mechanisms associated with very specific disorders. For example, uh, people who have bulging discs. There's a very specific mechanism that causes those uh, disc bulges, and they have uh, allowed those to creep into their life so that uh, they end up with a bulging disc or an implate fracture, Schmalz nodes. Uh, have very specific etiology, and obviously that uh, etiology, or movement pattern, shall we say, movement and load, is uh, in their life. So those are all uh, very person-specific uh, reasons why they end up with uh, painful backs. What, what do you think are the uh, biggest errors with, uh, first of all, training and then second of all, rehab of, of painful backs or dysfunctional low backs, whichever way you want to put that. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's fair. Uh, I suppose the number one uh, issue would be poor form. Mm -hmm. You know, people uh, think they know how to deadlift and squat and whatnot, and yet when I watch them, even under the eyes of their, their trainer quite often, they don't see the back breaking, the pelvis breaking away from uh, the L5 joint or the lumbosacral joint right at the bottom of the squat and they think it's okay. They didn't uh, assess their hips sufficiently to determine what a safe uh, depth of squat should be for that particular person. You know, again, it's very dependent on their anatomy. Uh, you get a, a long-legged person with very long femurs, say a, 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 a you know a, a basketball center. You wouldn't deep squat them. They simply don't have the the body for that kind of leverage. So very high stress risers are going to be caused uh, usually in the back. So poor form uh, would be one. Uh, the next one would probably be inappropriate dosage. Mm -hmm. uh, again. Uh, there's, if you were training an athlete, you would uh, consider very much a, a peak and taper schedule, uh, a week off here and there. Uh, and there are some people who every day go to the gym or go to the gym five days a week. And I say, well, what's your peak and taper schedule and where's your rest period? <laughs> Most adaptation and healing takes place. And they, they look at me as though I'm from Mars. They've never considered that they need a, a week off. So that allows this cumulative trauma to progress. Um, inappropriate choice of exercise, uh, I'm seeing more and more uh, people with uh, loose pelvic rings, just to use an example. So they might have been getting a bit of a back trouble, so they stopped two-legged squats. So instead they went to one-legged squats or loaded lunges, Bulgarian split squats and the like. And what they do when they do a deep uh, lunge that's loaded, the whole pelvic ring, if, if your right leg is forward, the right ilium rotates around to the back and, and the left ilium rotates forward. In other words, they torque the pelvis back and forth, loosen up the SI joints, and then they start getting sacroiliac pain, and they wonder uh, what they've done. And it was just simply, you know, doing a, a few lunges are all right, uh, but they just way overdid the dosage or, or medicine ball throws into a, a wall is a is another one i mm -hmm. can tell a story there uh, for the uh, last olympics i was uh, consulting for a country and they had all their sprinters throwing a medicine ball laterally into a wall and twisting around and worse yet they were throwing it off uh, with one knee planted on the ground and they just twisted their, their spines with each power rotation move, delaminated the discs, and every single one of them ended up with a torn disc. So again, a poor choice of exercise with an inappropriate dosage. So those are uh, just a few examples of uh, some training errors, but again, everybody's a bit different, and uh, what their tolerances are, and what the appropriate 
guess I guess I'm just gonna <clears throat> play a bit of devil's advocate here and say, w w you know, you speak about poor form. Right? You you, you kind of touched on this with the couch potato, but I see guys in the gym who train with terrible technique and they just never break down. Though their their bodies are just so resilient. Where you could see other people with perfect form, but yet they're always in pain. So the, the the keys then, in your opinion, Doctor McGill, to, to maintaining uh, back health. What what are the keys, in your opinion? Well, uh, boy, it took me two uh, textbooks to answer that question. <laughs> I've, re I've read both of them. I've read both of your textbooks. Yeah. Well, I, I guess we could uh, just in terms of generic principles. The first one is move well, and I'm not talking about just while you're training. I mean all day long. Try and move well. Uh, avoid pain. Treat treat your joints well. Uh, another one, which won't surprise you now after hearing my answer to the previous question, is interval train in tolerable doses. Um, people need to clearly define why they're training. Uh, is it to have a better back and uh, general overall health, or are they training to enhance their performance? And uh, I see just when I go to the gym doing a bit of consulting or, or, or working with, with someone, I'll see people who, uh, you know, you might go for a beer with them afterwards, and I just say, why do you train? And they say, well, just to be healthy. And yet when I watch them train, they were doing all performance training, taking a huge risk with their joints and their backs, which it's just, just a, an inappropriate program. Um, core stability would be a key to maintaining back health. Uh, first of all, uh, when, when I assess a patient to determine what the triggers of their back pain are, they're almost always motion and position specific. And uh, without appropriate stiffness, little micro-movements occur at the level of the joints and, and irritate nerves. Sometimes it's major uh, movement, sometimes it's very micro-movement, but nonetheless, uh, appropriate stiffness uh, can uh, uh, both prevent and uh, be key in, in rehabilitating back pain. But it also enhances performance, and if I can tell or describe this little analogy, your uh, listeners uh, we'll, we'll relate to this, Robbie. Um, consider the uh, pec major muscle. It attaches the anterior rib cage, crosses the shoulder, and attaches to the humerus. Agreed? Yeah. Okay. Well, when that muscle shortens, it brings the humerus around in flexion, but it also bends the rib cage towards the arm. So if you were to throw or to push or to punch, and use pec major muscle, your spine would bend as your rib cage bends, and also your arm will bend around. Well, that's not a very effective uh, performance. However, if you create proximal stiffness and lock down the torso, so now when the pectoralis major muscle shortens, 100% of its shortening uh, action goes to the arm. Nothing happens on the proximal side. So do you see how uh, excellent performance absolutely requires proximal stiffness in order to get high velocity and power out of a distal joint? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter whether you're running, throwing, kicking, lifting. Uh, you do need this concept of proximal stability, and the most proximal of it all is the... Uh, uh, what's known as the core of, of the torso. So that's another key principle uh, it, in, in maintaining back health and enhancing performance. Um, balancing up the other joints uh, around the back in some people is uh, very key and not in others. Uh, getting the progressions right, so start off with uh, good movement. There might be some corrective work required. Um, 
ensure that there's appropriate stiffness and stability occurring in the core. Uh, then begin endurance training enough to support the ability of an individual to, to call upon that core stiffness as it's needed. Then you have the foundation to develop strength and then uh, move on to uh, power and, and specific skills, etc. And uh, well, just as I was saying that, another idea was popping into the, my, my head, this idea of, of, of dosage and peaking and tapering. And, uh, you know, I, I don't train for uh, any uh, uh, specific uh, activity myself, but I still go through conscious peak and taper schedules just to keep my body healing as uh, we, we go through various adaptation cycles. So anyway, there's a few... Uh, uh, things that come to mind in any case. Can you speak about the uh, the diaphragm's role with regards to core stability and back health? How, how important do you see the diaphragm? Well, I, I can't answer that question at all until you gave me a very individual case. You know, in some people it, it doesn't matter one little bit, mm -hmm. and in others it's it's very important. Um, you know, uh, well, let's take an example of a rugby player or uh, a mixed martial artist. They have to breathe at very, very high rates, very challenged ventilation, and yet they still need, you know, the, the MMA uh, uh, athlete uh, has, needs, needs the, 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 the armor so that they can survive uh, punches and kicks and whatnot, and, and the role of the diaphragm of creating that stiffness is uh, uh, very important, and yet they still have to breathe. So uh, training those uh, the very athletic diaphragm so that there still is armor production plus core stability and they're still able to breathe very efficiently. Other types of people uh, just simply would hold their breath. I'm, I'm thinking of a, uh, a power lifter or an Olympic lifter, for example. Um, uh, another example might come to mind. Uh, you, know, you all know this is more uh, particular among uh, men when they uh, are called upon to create a strength exertion, they lift their chest, really extending the, uh, the, the thoracolumbar uh, junction. And uh, they end up getting local pain there and, and losing uh, power production and line of drive, etc. So uh, for them, they have an inappropriate uh, integration of the uh, diaphragm with the full uh, stiffening musculature, and, and that would require, uh, again, movement repatterning and, and uh, motor repatterning as well. But anyway, I, I'm, I'm just rambling here, I suppose, but there are three different uh, case presentations to, to show that I would answer that diaphragm question three different ways, very, very patient-specific or, or athlete-specific. Okay, so... Uh, um the next question I'm going to ask was the one we already spoke just before we came online, which was about um, this idea of you know soft core exercises versus hardcore. I kind of said that you know low and high threshold, but the basic premise of the question would be that some activities are what's termed soft core and some are what's termed is hardcore. Hardcore is what would be seen as bracing. It would be seen as a conscious. You actually have to tell your body to get tight and brace. So when we go to do a heavy deadlift or squat. Softcore is seen more as a feed-forward mechanism at a subconscious level where you actually don't actually tell yourself to stabilize your joints and uh, stabilizer muscles like this would be, you know, the, the, the transverse, the multifidus, the rotator cuff, the glute medius and that, you know, when we move our body to, 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 move, our perform to, to, to move our body around, this feed-forward mechanism happens at a subconscious level and then if we lift something heavy, then we constantly have to brace this brace that you, you would espouse and then there's this sort of discussion that bracing is good when needed to lift heavy things but as soon as you've completed a task that requires a brace you should be able to turn the brace off reason being that if you walk around with a brace all day those compressive forces or shear forces or whatever on your joints could actually be detrimental to your disc health that was a very very long question but <laughs> just so people get the get the idea so what what is your take on that well i have no disagreement with you at all that's exactly what i would have said because um, I, I, well, I, I think, I think that a lot of people, including myself, maybe believe that 
you would you know well again maybe it's just uh, obviously it's an assumption if you agree with that but a lot of people believe that you would tell everybody to stay in a brace but obviously that's not true then is it no it's not true i don't know who the heck would say something that's crazy (laughs) these are you know there's so much trash people uh uh say oh look at this site on the on 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 the web that uh says uh you always promote the, the the brace and whatnot and you know i read this stuff and this comes from people who have never heard me speak yeah. never seen me work with a, a patient or an athlete and and yet they have all these these uh, outlandish opinions yeah. of course you don't brace up somebody to uh, uh when they're walking uh sometimes a very mild abdominal activation will take their pain away it's it stiffens up their pelvis just enough to take their pain away yeah, yeah. so no i have that's a, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I would argue over the the mechanism of transverse abdominus. Again, when you look at the most recent uh, evidence, and we've, had, we've said this all along, first of all, have you ever found a patient who has a deficient transverse abdominus? Um, I can't say I personally have, but again, it, I suppose it depends what do you mean by deficient. What, what I understand the deficient deficiency is when it's timing mechanisms off, but not its strength. Like the way the the way the transverse works it isn't true strength; it works through timing. And the, the 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 mishap that a lot of therapists that I see have, and this this goes too for like glute medius or the rotator cuff, they try to strengthen stabilizers, but the problem with the stabilizers is not a strength issue; it is a timing issue. So trying to strengthen them. Is, is of no use to, to improve their timing mechanism. Well, I'm well aware of that. But all my point was is what's so peculiar about transverse abdominus is oh, all I kinds wasn't, of I, I wasn't, I wasn't for saying. training. Why, why, why do you pick on a muscle that is extremely difficult yeah. to get someone to change the activation of once you get past 1% of an activation level? Yeah, yeah. And uh, just, just, you know, I, I, wasn't, I, I wasn't saying what I just said there in in like a disagreement with you i'm just saying that that that's that was that's my take with regards to the transverse kind of stuff maybe from the australians if you want to say that 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 last quite or that last point for me wasn't aimed at yourself yeah well uh i don't know why the uh physical therapy world and some people in the training world uh got so excited about the transverse abdominus at the expense of ignoring all the other good literature that showed it wasn't only transverse abdominus that has odd timing, uh, there are other muscles that have uh, much greater perturbed timing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can read the papers by Silphies, for example, uh, showing in, in back pain uh, people. There's all sorts of subcategories of back pain where different muscle constellations have uh, odd timing. So I again, I think it's very. I'll just come out and say it. I think it's very poor it, when when people start this low threshold training, focusing on transverse abdominis, when they haven't even detected that that is the fault in that particular individual. Yeah, yeah. There's almost always a much bigger presentation to that patient that's problematic. Yeah. They should be starting there. And uh, if it's a matter of, uh, you know, just imagine sitting or standing, whatever you're doing, and holding your hand out in front of you and just push something to the left or right of you, what's the first muscles that should come on? Well, it should be the core muscles. Mm -hmm. And uh, whether they're uh, 30 millisecond uh, delays or 90 millisecond delays, uh, it, I doubt it will be something very particular with the uh, uh, transverse abdominus because uh, once you get past one or two percent of, of maximum contraction levels, uh, it's it's right in sync with the internal oblique anyway. Mm-hmm. So I, I think people are making a, a, a mountain out of a molehill on that one. But anyway, it absolutely is a misquote to say that I all I do is brace people up with. The whole idea of bracing is tuning. Yeah. You have to tune and create appropriate stiffness throughout your body to uh, uh, create controlled movement. The motor control system uses stiffness to control movement. It doesn't mean you can't move. You mm-hmm. can still be stiff and move your arm and shoulder, but it's stiffness that controls the trajectory of a, 
result of, uh, uh, you might need joint stiffness just to hold the joint together, you might need joint stiffness to control the movement. Mm -hmm. But it's a, a fallacy to say, oh, just stiffen them up so they don't move and crush their joint. I've never said such a thing. Well, I think I think uh, uh, like uh, a lot of this, like a lot of information is coming from this uh, dynamic neuromuscular stabilization and maybe even PRI. But with the DNS model, they're very much of like using a baby as their model, and that's why they're big into breeding and the diaphragm, and they speak really highly of you know the feed forward mechanism. But I think what's going on here is there's, ju there's just a lot of misunderstanding and misinterpretation of people's work and. I think that's why people kind of think that Stuart McGill's a brace guy. It's no different to like Mike Boyle just does single leg work and, you know, Lee Taft only does speed and agility work and Eric Cressy's just a shoulder guy. Like people are kind of getting painted with just these, these brushes, I suppose. Oh, yeah, you know, I, every one of those names you just mentioned, I know. And they're all pretty clever people. And uh, they have a lot of tools in their toolbox. They're famous for a reason. And uh, there's, there's all this internet chit-chat from people who have never, I've, I've, I've worked with Cressy, I know him, I've worked with Boyle, they're both fine minds who uh, customize their, their training for every single individual, yeah. and you know, someone will pull a little quote or a sound bite and take it out of context and put it all over the internet and, and paint these people. It, it really is a very strange time that we're, uh, <laughs> that we're in, you know, with, yeah. the, with this Internet where, where people can hide in their basement and express an opinion and they're, they're not well read and the, the, they don't even know the people that they're talking about. I think it's I think it's because you know with things like me, the media the media internet like with Facebook everybody's trying to get like a one up it's like a one upmanship kind of thing like oh look what I'm doing or look what I said or look at this article I wrote that's so controversial and everyone's trying to get noticed and have publications and things because of I suppose because of the last few years with things like Facebook and Twitter and whatnot. Yeah, I I, I think I agree with you on that one, Robbie. Um. Okay. Let's let's move on to um. This this might get a bit heated as well, but. You know, there, there there is some critics, and now and, and again, this this isn't me now, Stuart. So I'm or Dr. McGill. I'm I'm not. Um, this is my criticism. I'm just I just want I want to give you a chance to air your your opinions. But there's people who have criticised your work on spines because they were pig spines, and their argument is that they're horizontal, where human spines are vertical. What what would you say to those people? I would say to those people, they're lazy. <laughs> They have not done their homework, and then they went and irresponsibly expressed an opinion. Uh, I've published, I mean, I've been at this uh, 30 years. Uh, know, we've published know, yeah. over 200 medical publications. This isn't publications on the Internet. These are peer-reviewed publications, big studies in the medical literature. Over 90% of them have been on humans. We do use animal models occasionally and the reason is we need control over certain uh, variables when we're doing experiments so if I needed 50 identical spines where we might take 20 to do one intervention 20 to do another intervention and 10 to hold back as a control group uh, first of all you can't get 50 identical human spines so you have to come up with a an available animal model but of course we then go and calibrate whatever uh, result we get from an animal investigation back to humans. Otherwise, we would never get them published. So it sounds to me, uh, if people, says, people say, well, I use animal uh, preparations for certain principles and experiments, uh, they may have read one of those studies and assumed, because they don't know what uh, the, the breadth of the work, they say, oh, well, I've, I've based it on an animal model. I can't think of any principle that I've based on an animal model. I may have enhanced our understanding of some of our mechanisms. You know, we'd be nowhere in understanding cancer without animal models. Okay. We wouldn't be very far in understanding disc herniation patterns when we had to isolate all the different variables that contribute to, uh, uh, to disc herniation. I mean, for example, the shape of the disc. We learned all that from animal preparations. And then we went back and uh, uh, confirmed it with, with humans. So that, that's all I can really say. I, I, I'd, I'd like these people to say it to me, yeah. and uh, I'd, I'd, I'd glad, gladly uh, 
actually, I, I loved what you said there that you'd wish they say to you because whenever someone criticizes or says something about someone else, I'm always like, have you ever actually spoke to that person? Have you ever went and met them and been at their facility or clinic? And uh, the, the answer is nearly always no. And I'm like, well, how can you really express an opinion? <laughs> like, what, like I, and I'm sure in your case, you said that you would happily answer. And I, I'm, I'm always saying that too. I'm sure if you actually emailed them, they would actually answer you, answer you, you know, so... It's just, I don't know. Yeah, you, you, you know, Robbie, it's, it's interesting. When I was uh, younger, uh, I, I'd spend time and, and make the investment. You know, if you want to be an expert at something, it doesn't happen overnight. It requires a lot of effort. But I would go and work with different people and try and understand their perspectives. Yeah. You know, work with, with great clinicians like, like, like Shirley Saruman or Dick Earhart or Clayton Skaggs or some of these people and, and try and learn their perspectives. And you'll never get a perspective reading their book or listening to uh, an Internet interview. Uh, there's always much more in terms of depth and insight to that person. You know, going down to Mike Boyle's uh, training facility, it was a wonderful day that we had, and we tossed around different ideas, and we went out on the training floor and tried a few things, and then we watched a few of his athletes and whatnot, and it was just wonderful to actually see his his thought process and and the depth of it all, and the same with Cressy and all these other people. Mm So, yeah, absolutely. I, I think what you just said was very wise. Go and try and understand these people or go out for a beer with them afterwards say you've been to a perform better meeting or something like that and uh have a good conversation with them and i think you'll find with all of these people there's much more depth to them than whatever comes across in a in an article or a book or a position paper just 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 for yourself now i actually interned with mike boyle for four months oh yeah, Fantastic. So I know I know Mike well and I've I've met Eric on a number of occasions. I was in Eric's facility twice, so um, Yeah. But would you agree with, with what I've just said? Oh absolutely, absolutely because I've I've actually met people back here in Ireland who would who would badmouth Mike Boyle and say, Oh, he only does this and this or and, and I'd be like I I've worked I've worked in that facility I've seen what goes on there and you're completely wrong so you like your your argument is null and void like I remember I met one coach one day and he he actually he wasn't criticizing Mike he was like I like Mike Boyle he he's really like safe and rehab he doesn't really lift any heavy weights and I was like no uh, his athletes lift heavy weights he just doesn't you know very correctly you know what I mean I was like they all Olympic lift and do lots of heavy lower body and upper body work and he integrates of course they do you don't put people in the NHL lifting. Uh you know, <laughs> like like this 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 coach taught my all Mike did was like a uh, bird Isn't dogs. Funny? Yeah, it's so funny. It's so funny. But yeah. uh, the the next the next uh, the next criticism or question again, and and you can you know you 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 elaborate as much as you want on this. The other criticism I've heard is that oh well, McGill uses dead tissue samples versus live tissue samples, so it makes some of his flexion and extension numbers a bit invalid. What what would you say to that, Doctor McGill? I'd say you're talking to someone who doesn't know what they're talking about. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, here's, I, I know people have, have said, oh, what's the number? What's the number of flexion cycles that a person can do? Yeah, yeah. And again, it's a stupid question. Yeah. Would you say your 60-year-old mother would have the same tolerance as you? Of course not. I'd like, I'd like to think uh, that. The, the shape of the disc, uh, for example... Um, people, if they have a limacon shaped, which if you look at the disc from the top on an MR, if it's shaped like a kidney bean, they uh, bulge and herniate in a very specific pattern. Those are the shapes of the discs that you'll find in the big rugby players, for example, the guys who can really uh, take a lot of ballistic compression. But you'll find very few of them can hit a golf ball. They can't twist their spine to hit a golf ball very far. What you'll find with the golfers is they tend to have slender spines and more ovoid discs because that is the biomechanical configuration that allows such a, uh, a movement to take. So if someone were to ask me, you know, how, how many cycles of flexion can a person take, and I would say, well, um, let me assess them and I'd start to converge on an opinion. However, where did I get that information from? It all started with creating those torsional injuries and the the different types of uh, flexion damage 
on animal spines. And then we went to humans after we discovered that original principle. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I do get a little short when I hear opinions from people who have, who probably know 1% of the story. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's that's it's completely, very very frustrating. That's completely understandable. Yeah, well, of course, it's it's frustrating. Again, I I guess you're like I, and I'm like I'm a very holistic person. So my podcast has very like I get into like holistic health and wellness, and I've often spoke about kind of like being a victim of your culture and kind of the developmental conditioning. So like you know, if if you're a child and you're brought up around friends and neighborhoods or a culture that's very sort of always condemning or questioning or like you know kind of trying to put people down i guess that's the way they're going to come out if they're within the fitness industry and they see people and they're like oh you know he doesn't know what he's doing or he doesn't know what he's doing i suppose that they're just they're in that sort of mind frame all the time yeah it, it's interesting to uh it, it's funny to watch a graduate student evolve so if i take a phd student some of them will come in with a, well they all come in with passion because that's how i choose them but the, some of them come in very raw. They have the passion, but they don't know how to consume science yet, nor do they know how to have a conversation like you and I are having. Yeah. We're having a very wonderful, stimulating conversation. Nothing is taboo. Everything's out in the open, and we're just having a, a fun discussion about it. Yeah. We should really be doing this down at the pub, you know, with beer and uh, uh, peanuts. But uh, <laughs> in any case, they learn to have fun with all of this, and then they learn that there's, there's always exceptions, there's no perfect rules, and uh, the great ones have many opinions that will vary based on the case. They have many tools in their training toolbox. They, they just become more clever at knowing when to match what opinion with which client or patient, um, etc. I mean, I, I know exactly you know what I mean, but that's more yeah, of a, yeah. a little bit of a, a, an essay, I suppose, for for, for very strongly opinionated people, um, they'll get caught. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just yeah, exactly. They they will. They'll eventually have to eat humble pie at some stage. That's and that's kind of my. I'm lucky enough, I suppose, because I've I've learned from people like Mike and Mike and, and Eric and and yourself from just reading reading your work, um, and, and and other people in my life that I suppose my one my one true belief is that uh, never be dogmatic about anything. So it's kind of only an oxymoron within itself. You know, I'm always like always remain open minded. My one belief is never to be dogmatic about any sort of belief that you have. So. Well, it's a balance, you know. You have to know when you hold steady and say, no, this is what the evidence shows. It's, there's a preponderance of it. If the humans show the same thing as the animals and the same thing as the epidemiological perspectives, etc. You know, there's a time to hold your ground a little bit. Definitely. But absolutely, uh, you'll get caught once in a while, and uh, you have to say, you know, my understanding at that time was uh, not correct. But the worst sin of all is to perpetuate a myth yeah, of, yeah. Uh, of you don't you didn't do not you but whoever didn't do their homework and now they're telling everybody else what someone else is thinking or what their perspective it's, is when they haven't it, worked with them or it's it's that, that's it, sin. it's it's funny too because when, whenever when whenever I actually give a, like a, a seminar or, or when, I, when I do my mentorship or any sort of lecture talks I'm always very careful how I speak because I'll always say things like these are my current opinions or these are my current beliefs uh from, from what i from what like we currently know because there's just so much we don't know like you know like for instance if we're talking i always use the example if we, if we talk about energy systems so far we know there's you know aerobic anaerobic lactate and anaerobic alactic and in 20 years time some scientists will say oh there's actually a fourth energy system it's like well that throws a, a you know a wrench in the works now <laughs> you know so so I, I, well, everybody thought Newton was right until Einstein came along. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, quantum physics is, is the model now. So that's it. Like, that's but you like, know, it, it, just to take that example, Newton is still right 99% of the time on Earth. Yeah, that's true. You get yeah. into some really big, some little, little small issues, Einstein has to take over. But, uh, you know, again, there's a time and a place. Exactly. But uh, there you go. Exactly. Um, I just want to ask about... Um, that, you know in a lot of a lot of clips I've seen with you particularly when it comes to like deadlifting or, or, or even just some other lifts you're a big proponent of how to use the lats do you see this a lot of time that just people don't understand how to use the lats in certain exercises yes uh, that's, go that's, that's about as simple as it comes 
and how 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 would you go about fixing that or how like as well, I know it's individual too but what 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 kind of cues do you find help is it like you know saying a deadlift is it pulling the bar in in a chin up is it driving the elbows into the rib cage or how, how would yeah you know? well again person specific but I have to watch the setup yeah and I have to watch the uh, setup of the lifter's wedge uh, what I can get out of the hips and the ankles the T spine etc. Um, but generally speaking, if, if we are going to be lat specific, um, not always, but, oh, well, first of all, I get them to shake my hand, and then I ask them to squeeze hard, mm-hmm. and I see what the athleticism of their, their hand grip is. Um, are they getting what we call a full lobster claw, which is good crushing grip through the first joint, uh, you know, between the, the fat part of your hand and your fingers? I want to see good distributed grip through that joint. And in every single finger, I want to feel good force. A lot of people who pull get uh, dominance in their first and second finger, and the outside of their hand is dead. So I I teach them to grip more strongly and completely. Then with that grip or or crushing grip, we we will try and add the image of a stiffer arm pushing the bar away, but externally rotating and pulling down with lats. Well, some of your readers will say, or listeners will say, oh, well, the lats don't externally rotate the arm. And again, they don't understand because they haven't seen me do this. But uh, we gather the the back. But again, it depends. If they're a big uh, barrel-chested kind of lifter, um, that would uh, take too much of their leverage away, for example. Again, it it all depends, but uh, bending the bar through this image of gathering your back and and, and external rotation. Um, Yeah, it'd be better if I could do it with my hands and and cue a a lifter uh, together with you. But uh, anyway, there's a... a does that create enough of a visual image? Well, I, I, I've seen I've seen your DVD, so I, I understand that you're you, you're you're a big proponent. I, I especially in like the pu- in a push up and even with the feet with the squat, you're a big proponent of kind of using that kind of external rotation, that torque, that uh, with the feet you call it like spreading the floor, isn't it? This this kind of idea. Yes, I I will use that occasionally for sure. Yeah, so I I I I, I have seen it. Um, Okay, let's like last about ten minutes, Doctor McGill, and, I'll, and then I'll let you go. This has been a, a fantastic interview. I really, really enjoying it. Um, if I let's say I, I'm someone who you know who, who gets in touch with you, I've seen my te- my ten or twelve therapists. I'm still in chronic pain. Like, do you have a certain system? Now I know everyone's an individual, but do you kind of have like a system that you, that you use with each individual? Um, so well, I, I have an approach. an approach. Is that what you're interested in? Yeah, yeah. How, how would you go about it? Well, the that? approach begins with an interview. Okay. And I get them to verbally characterize their pain patterns, because everybody comes to me with back pain. There's, that's the only reason they come to see me. And uh, I, I get them to describe whether it's through the night, is it worse in the morning, or does it ramp up through the day, or do you have movement catches, or... Or, and then I get them to describe the pain, uh, where it is, uh, it, it's, its character in, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, deep, boring pain. Or, uh, and then um, I have key questions for them, like, uh, do you have uh, uh, better days and worse days? And if they answer yes to that, I know I'm guaranteed success. All I have to do is isolate what causes them to have a, a good and a bad day. Um, uh, I ask them when they roll over in bed, do you get a sharp pain, etc. Anyway, uh, and throughout that whole process, by the way, I'm assessing their personality. Uh, if they're a, a type A personality, you know, uh, some t- a few minutes ago we were discussing about uh, dosage. The type A personality, if you say do go and do three repetitions, they'll go and do five, and then they just overdosed their back. Um, if you get a type B personality and say go do three, they will then immediately bargain with you and try and negotiate for why they only need to do one. So <laughs> again, I'm, I'm trying to assess all of this uh, during the interview. Then I begin, uh, well, I, I walk from my office at that point down to the assessment clinic. It's down two flights of stairs and they have to open three heavy doors. 
two are push doors, one is a pull door. That whole time I'm assessing their gait, I'm watching their push and pull patterns, I'm finding out if there are any pain triggers uh, during that. They have no clue that the assessment has already started. I've already watched them get out of the chair, uh, and, and you can almost see their pain triggers. Uh, whether they have intelligence or not, I'm listening to their footfalls for, for uh, nerve impingement and, and all sorts of things like that. Then uh, once we get to the clinic, it takes me, oh, depending on the patient, but we do a full uh, assessment uh, of provocative tests. I test them in compression, shear, uh, bending. Uh, then we do uh, the neurology to see if there's any nerve tensions uh, anywhere. Um, I'll look at uh, interplay with uh, other joints. Um, and uh, once we've been able to isolate the motions, postures, and loads that cause pain, we then really isolate the trigger levels, how much motion, how much load, uh, et cetera. Uh, then we create a, uh, a movement set, this is long before any exercise is prescribed, to showing them how to move to avoid those specific pain triggers that we've uh, identified. Uh, then we'll discuss uh, an exercise uh, progression, and uh, as you know from my, my textbook, it starts with, uh, it has five stages, the first stage is uh, corrective exercise. Second stage is what we just call stability mobility, and that's all about the conversation we had earlier about tuning the stiffness appropriately, not too much and not too little, and that tuning is changing all the time uh, if it takes their pain away. So if, if a little bit more uh, stiffness and bracing is required to take the pain away while they walk and stop some of the aberrant pelvic motions, then that's what they do. But you know, you're at, you are absolutely correct in that that bracing might cause pain. It's far too much. And then we would have to teach them to dial it back a little bit. And everybody's just different in their response, so you have to observe it. And uh, on the fly, uh, adjust. There, there, there aren't any always do this or that. It's, it's, again, what the patient shows you. So that's stage two. Then stage three, we then start building... Um, uh, endurance progressions of simple moves, whatever the form of the big three is that work, is typically where we would start. Um, a bird dog, a very disabled back, all they might do is, is be on all fours and just lift one hand up, and that's all they can tolerate at that particular time. Others, we might do full bird dogs, pushing the heel, drawing squares, uh, all sorts of uh, variations like that. Uh, then uh, I, I might say we have a big uh, uh, athlete, we would then show obviously much more robust uh, endurance progression, say they're a, a UFC fighter where we have to uh, create an endurance progression that will allow them to fight a championship fight five minutes on, one minute off times five. Or we might have a swimmer or uh, a kayaker or, or whatever that you'd have to build a, a progression for. Then, and only then, they're now moving well. They have the endurance to maintain those pristine movement patterns throughout the day. Then it's time to get into serious strength. And uh, with your listeners, they may think they know strength training. I'm talking about a whole different level here. Strength training, from an athletic point of view, is, requires a lot of expertise because we're going to really tickle the dragon's tail now. And if you make a mistake, they're going to get hurt. Uh, so you, you obviously know my DVDs and, and some of the, the techniques uh, there. Um, but a flaw in form, because we're at levels that uh, are, are, are close to a threshold. Uh, there's no mistakes there. It's very precise work. Then we get into uh, speed and power. And somehow, in all of that, we will try and work in whatever their specific athletic skills are uh, at, at the same time. Anyway, there's a, a little bit of a, uh, you asked for an approach. That's great. <laughs> that's, that's, great. That's, 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 that's exactly exactly what I was looking for. And 
just with, with regards to some athletes, <laughs> let's say you know in that five stage approach and they're going back to strength, would you ever tell them? Would you ever say? To, and on again, I know I know it's individual, but it, let's say there was a specific individual. Um, would you say to them, I really don't think you should do exercise X or Y anymore because because of your history with your back, depending on what that is. Oh, absolutely. They got hurt in the first place because of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I was just I was just wondering because you, you, again you see so many. I it's funny. I actually I've seen sometimes you know people go oh, I hurt my back. Let's say and I, and don't get me wrong here. I love like squatting and deadlifting, but some guy might say oh, I hurt my back badly deadlifting, and he says like I, I can't wait till my back feels good again so so I can start doing my bad deadlifts again. Now he didn't say, he didn't say bad deadlifts. He just said deadlifts. But uh, it was yeah. it was funny because Mike Boyle said uh, said that's the that's like saying uh, I slammed my finger in a car door and I can't wait for my finger to be okay again to slam it in the door again. <laughs> yeah, well, that's exactly right, and good on Mike. <laughs> um, these are these are my my last my, my last two questions, uh, Doctor McGill. Just and I suppose this goes back to the type A and B personalities. But with regards to like rehab homework, again, do, do you you would consider their personality with regards to how much you're going to give them? Would you like so? I mean, you'd often hear some some therapists and clinicians they say you know don't overload somebody with homework like don't give them 12 exercises just give them two or three self-limiting type exercises the the ones that they're going to get the most bang for their book basically well again that's very very person specific some people as as you're aware are are very savvy and uh, you know you can just let them go and they'll be fine and others need all kinds of uh, uh, coaching so uh, again, I, I I think you're just going to have to use your your intuition okay. and uh, experience to uh, answer that one. And then my my final question, um, and I don't know how, how much information you have given this, but do you take any other factors into someone's back pain? Now I'm thinking like nutrition, just from a standpoint of like systemic inflammation in the body, stopping like regeneration and repair of the discs. Would you ever get into that with anyone, or would you, would you advise someone to go see an expert in that field? Uh, well, the answer is I'll consider it occasionally. Okay. Uh, when I hear people say, "Oh well," Um, your spicy food is uh, is stopping or is, is a cause of your bad back or uh, inflammation because you're eating too many uh, uh, tomatoes and, and that family of uh, no, I forget what oh the nightshade family of yeah. plants. I I think if if that's the level that they're at from the first approach, they're missing the, the boat. Um, you know, we 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 try. <laughs> a few years ago, with uh, some of the the, the Polish Olympic team, I, I was uh, just having a conversation, and, and they started to laugh when uh, I, I said, "Have you, have you ever heard of this idea of eating spicy food? It irritates your gut, and you lose your strength." And they said, "You know what we do the, the night before a big competition? We go eat spicy food because it gives us a charge." <laughs> oh, hey. Well, I suppose, I suppose. So, you know, in, in, unless it's really overt, the, the, the person is quite malnourished or whatnot, I would start with what I know, yeah, which yeah. is good exercise, and then if they did have uh, a nutritional issue, I mean, I, I have to say, look, that's not my expertise, I'd send them off to Berardi or someone like that. Yeah, yeah, it's just that in your, let's say in your intake, in your interview, if they said, oh, I've, I've really bad irritable bowel all my life, and just know from, you know, uh, oh, okay. Well, no, that's a different question now. <laughs> then I would say, great, you're beyond my expertise. Go see our nutritional colleague over here. Yeah, yeah, because 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 of you know that kind of uh, visceral somatic response where if their gut wall is really inflamed, it will actually shut off their their stabilizers of their spine, like. Well, uh, sure, but if I if I assess them and I and I don't detect that. Then I think, oh, someone's been blowing smoke up there. You know what? <laughs> um, uh, Doctor McGill, that that's... I'll assess them, and if I see something like that, uh, as I said, I'll I'll refer out because that's well outside of my scope. That's there's there's actually one question I I always ask at the start, and I actually forgot to ask. But who who actually have been your influences in your career? Like, how did you actually become, you know, Doctor Shoot McGill? Oh, good. I, 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 I can't really answer that question uh, in, in, in terms of what, what started it because it was just, just the dumbest of luck.
was starting my PhD, my, my supervisor, a fellow named Bob Norman, was just starting uh, spine investigations. And uh, I uh, was brought along with all of this, and I started to look at what research was being done in the area. And people were using these very simplistic models that I, I thought, uh, these have no hope of revealing how the spine really works and how, uh, give reasonable insight into injury mechanisms and whatnot. So I decided at that time to create the most sophisticated, insightful model that I could, driven from biological signals like muscle activation patterns and have the ligaments in there that respond to joint position and all this sort of stuff. So that's where we, I mean, we're going back 30 years ago now. Uh, but then, uh, of course, we'd be doing other spine-specific uh, types of uh, experiments, and I'd get invited to go to the odd neurology meeting or orthopedic meeting, and uh, I'd give my presentation. But remember, I was trained as a scientist, not as a clinician. And then uh, the docs would say, you know, what you just showed us, is a very interesting perspective on the cause of back pain. Could you come and see a patient that's particularly difficult for us right now? And I say, well, no, I'm not a clinician. I don't see patients. And they say, well, look, please come. Uh, we'll be with you, and uh, don't worry about it. Just, just we'd, we'd like your perspective on this because it seems a bit different. So I would do that, and then I came to realize that our very biomechanical insights were not what the, uh, the medical community had. And then all of a sudden I could see, ah, yeah, I, 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 I think we do have something to c contribute on that. So slowly uh, I would uh, start to see patients with our medical colleagues, and then they would start referring patients without them even being there. And uh, that just continued until, and, and by the way, I've, I've worked with some, some stellar uh, clinicians. I, I, I mentioned uh, a few uh, earlier in the in the uh, in the interview, and I'm always learning from uh, uh, colleagues when we do an assessment together. Um, as you can imagine, we get uh, numerous visitors uh, uh, coming to our uh, lab and clinic from around the world, and uh, they'll say, "Oh, can we come in and watch you assess a patient or whatnot?" And, and I, I quite enjoy it because I'll, I'll ask them during the assessment, I say, well, how would you interpret that or what would you do uh, at this point? And they might have a little insight and I'll watch them. And, and if I don't believe it or I think it's something that I don't understand, guess what our next experiment is? You're going to try it. Yeah, we'll, we'll try and investigate it to, to, to see if we can understand what they just did that made them better or uh, worse. So, um, yeah, oh, so some of the great surgeons initially, people like Harry Farfan, who's uh, long since passed, would be uh, one. Uh, Bill Kirkaldi-Willis, both have written very famous uh, uh, orthopedic surgery uh, books on the spine. They were heavily uh, big influences for me in the beginning. Um, but, uh, yeah, so many people along the way. Um, that Dr. Stuart McGill, that was one hell of an interview. I thank you so much for your time, sir. And uh, just for anybody listening, how can they find out more about you, your books, your DVDs, your your speaking arrangements? Yeah, well, uh, backfitpro.com, and it's just as it sounds. Backfitpro.com is is uh, where we sell the uh, books and the uh, DVDs and. Uh, Thanks a million, thank you a million. And uh, one of my friends, uh, he always said, if I ever got a chance to talk to you, he always wanted to ask, where can he get one of those mustaches? <laughs> yeah, well, choose your parents, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> they, both, they, they both must be pretty hairy. <laughs> um, Dr. Dr. Anyway, you know, I'm coming to Ireland. Uh, yeah, when? When are you coming to Ireland? 
Well, I, I think, uh, geez, I haven't been for a number of years now, but I think we're going to come and do a course. I'll have to look on my calendar. I know, I know that you're, in, you're, uh, I know that Portugal, you... Portugal, and we'll, we'll twin it up with one in, uh, in Ireland as well. I, I know that you're down to come to Bournemouth in England in February 2014, so I, I was actually looking forward to that, but if you're coming to Ireland, that's even better. Uh, um, jeez, I, you know, I'm, I'm the world's worst businessman. I never go on that website. Someone else does all that stuff. But, uh, I, I think we'll, uh, we'll arrange that, uh, uh, Irish, uh, uh, gig. Definitely. Well, there, there's a, there's a spare room in this house, uh, if, if, if you need, if you need somewhere to stay. Oh, okay. Well, uh, that, that might be a, a bit of fun. Uh, I mean, as you know, a lot of my genes come from that country, so uh, I love coming back. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Uh, Doctor McGill, just just stay online. Um, just just while I after I after I hit stop here, um, I just want to thank the listeners who are going to be listening to this podcast. So, guys, uh, what a great interview with Doctor Stuart McGill, and again, check out his website and anything by by this guy. He he's just he's a whirlwind of knowledge. So, I want to thank everyone for listening, and I'll talk to you soon, guys. Take care. <laughs> Thank you.